The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane, me Richard Lee, and me Claire Armistead. In this episode, we speak to the Turkish author Elif Shafak about 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world, her new book along listed novel set in Istanbul, which tells the story of a murdered sex worker in the immediate aftermath of her death. Three months ago, Elif was placed under investigation by Turkish prosecutors, along with a number of other writers, under suspicion that her work condoned child abuse and sexual violence. They don't make a distinction. If a writer writes about these subjects, paedophilia, sexual violence, those sentences are taken out of the book as if you're defending sexual harassment, she said at the time. It isn't the first time she has fallen foul of the Turkish censors. In 2006, she was tried and acquitted for insulting Turkishness after prosecutors noticed a character in her novel, The Bastard of Istanbul, referred to the massacre of Armenians in the First World War as genocide. Campaigners, including the writer's charity Pen, have condemned this latest move as a serious threat to free speech, and Elif herself now lives in London. Elif, uh, this novel is called 10 Minutes 38 Seconds in This Strange World, and it takes the very radical step of, of opening after the death of its protagonist, which is structurally challenging. It's also laying down a philosophical challenge and, uh, as it turns out, a political challenge. Why did you decide to do this? I guess I became very interested in these studies, scientific and medical studies, that show after the moment of death, after the heart has stopped beating, the human mind remains active for another few minutes. To me, that was just a very fascinating puzzle. And particularly in Canada, researchers have observed persistent brain activity in dead patients for about 10 minutes. I think as an author, I wanted to add my own 38 seconds to that. So right away in this book, we know that the main protagonist is dead. Um, Her body has been dumped in a garbage bin, but her brain is still functioning as she remembers her past minute by minute by minute. We travel into her story, but also the story of her country and also maybe the story of the Middle East a little bit, but always told through the eyes of outcasts. This character is called Keila Leila. That is the name she gives herself. Will you read a little bit so we can meet her? Yes. The end. Her name was Leila. Tequila Leila, as she was known to her friends and her clients. Tequila Leila, as she was called at home and at work, in that rosewood-coloured house on a cobblestone cul-de-sac down by the wharf, nestled between a church and a synagogue, among lamp shops and kebab shops, the street that harboured the oldest licensed brothels in Istanbul. Still, if she were to hear you put it like that, she might take offence and playfully throw a shoe, one of her high-heeled stilettos. Is, darling, not was. My name is Tequila Leila. Never in a thousand years would she agree to be spoken of in the past tense. The very thought of it would make her feel small and defeated, and the last thing she wanted in this world was to feel that way. No, she would insist on the present tense, even though she now realised with a sinking feeling that her heart had just stopped beating and her breathing had abruptly ceased, and whichever way she looked at her situation, there was no denying that she was dead. None of her friends knew it yet. This early in the morning, 
they would be fast asleep, each trying to find the way out of their own labyrinth of dreams. Layla wished she were at home too, enveloped in the warmth of bed covers, with her cat curled at her feet, purring in drowsy contentment. Her cat was stone deaf and black, except for a patch of snow on one paw. She had named him Mr. Chaplin after Charlie Chaplin, for, just like the heroes of early cinema, he lived in a silent world of his own. Tequila Leila would have given anything to be in her apartment now. Instead, she was here, somewhere on the outskirts of Istanbul, across from a dark, damp football field, inside a metal rubbish bin with rusty handles and flaking paint. It was a wheelie bin, at least four feet high and half as wide. Leila herself was five foot seven, plus the eight inches of her purple slingback stilettos still on her feet. There was so much she wanted to know. In her mind, she kept replaying the last moments of her life, asking herself where things had gone wrong. A futile exercise, since time could not be unraveled, as though it were a ball of yarn. Her skin was already turning greyish-white, even though her cells were still abuzz with activity. She could not help but notice that there was a great deal happening inside her organs and limbs. People always assumed that a corpse was no more alive than a fallen tree, devoid of consciousness. But given half a chance, Leila would have testified that on the contrary, a corpse was brimming with life. She could not believe that her mortal existence was over and done with. Only the day before, she had crossed the neighborhood of Pera, her shadow gliding along streets named after military leaders and national heroes, streets named after men. Just that week, her laughter had echoed in the low-ceilinged taverns of Galata and Kurtulush and the small, stuffy dens of Topane, none of which ever appeared in travel guides or on tourist maps. The Istanbul that Leila had known was not the Istanbul that the Ministry of Tourism would have wanted foreigners to see. So, in introducing us to Leila, you have also introduced us to, we could say, the sixth or seventh major character, which is Istanbul itself. Even in that brief passage, you have that where she lived was nestled between a church and a synagogue, which is, talks about the religious partisanship. It's a street of brothels. But you also say streets named after military leaders and national heroes. But you have always described Istanbul as, a, as the she city. Yes, I think that's the irony because I believe the spirit, the essence of the city um, is very feminine. And uh, maybe there's a part of me that wants to remind people that particularly if you follow the history of literature, artists, poets, writers have always imagined Istanbul as a woman. Uh, this is not only the case with Ottoman poets, but also if you go back to Byzantine Empire, again, Istanbul was always associated with feminine spirits, goddesses. So there's a tradition, there's a literary tradition that sees Istanbul as a woman, but we've forgotten that. And it's especially easy to f forget this today because as you walk around, it's very clear that streets belong to men, public squares belong to men, especially after certain hours. It's a very male-dominated city. But I just want to reclaim maybe the public space, the urban space, and I want to be able to say, actually, this is a she-city.
It's also a city that spans Europe and Asia. And um, this is, as well as being a, a love story, story of friendship, well, it has so many different elements. It's also a historical novel. And you very cleverly and quite subtly put in key historical dates, one of which is the building of the Bosphorus Bridge, which joins the Asian side of Istanbul to the European side of Istanbul. In fact, it says welcome to the Asian continent on one side and welcome to the European continent on the other. And that's a remarkable story because when the when the bridge was built, it was celebrated uh, with such optimism. You know, people thought from now on we're part of Europe, we belong in Europe. And of course, that optimism has declined over the years. I find history very important, particularly for a country like Turkey. We do, of course, have a very rich, very complex, multi-layered history. But at the same time, we're a society of collective amnesia. Our relationship with the past is full of ruptures. Many people sincerely know nothing about the past. There's a huge void. And that void is always filled with either religious interpretations of history or ultranationalist interpretations of history. So one narrative dominates that space. And I think it's important to say, well, what about minorities? What about sexual minorities, cultural minorities, ethnic minorities? Anyone who has felt like the other for whatever reason, what about their story? So I think literature has a responsibility. Of course, we are interested in stories as writers, but there's a part of me that's equally interested in silences. Let's come back to the minorities, which is a very big part of this novel as well, later. But I want to just go through some of the history that you talk about. So so we know that Leila was born on January the 6th, 1947. What is the significance of that date? I think I want to take readers back in time a little bit. And there were these moments of optimism when the world seemed different, and decade by decade. So I talk about the Korean War. war. I talk about the changes in the Middle East. Uh, I talk a little bit about colonialism and its aftermath. But for me, what is crucial is how did so-called ordinary human beings, men and women, experience those very dramatic turning points in history? What remained? And if I may share just one example with you, because I think Istanbul is a city that gives you such stories. I lived on a street called Kazanje, which is also briefly mentioned in this book. It means the street of cauldron makers. This was a very steep street that ran all the way down from Taksim Square, you know, this iconic public square. And I lived there in, in 1990s. The history of that street is quite interesting. In 1950s, for instance, when the time when Leila is born, that street was mostly populated by Christians, mostly Armenians and Greeks, but also lots of Jewish families resided in the area. And many of them had to leave that area because they didn't feel welcome anymore. Um, And then in 1970s, sexual minorities moved in, lots of LGBTQ members. But in 1980, after the military takeover, they were driven out, most of them by violence, by force. And then in 1990s, Bohemian artists moved in, lots of feminists moved into the area. Again, many of them didn't feel welcome after a while. And today there's a much more conservative population. But from every group of people who resided there, someone remained. So by the time I moved into that neighborhood. I had a very old Jewish neighbor. I had an old Armenian neighbor. I had an old transvestite neighbor. And to me, it seemed like we were all passengers on a boat. You know, nothing was stable. Nothing was solid in this liquid city. Everyone came and went and we left our stories behind. You mentioned that that changed 
the gentrification was in the 90s. Now, you end this novel in 1990, again, another very significant date, the 29th of November 1990. And I wondered why you chose that particular date. Yeah, because in 1990, and I remember this very clearly, um, every now and then this happens in Turkey, legislators, lawmakers come up with these horrible ideas, very misogynist ideas. So in 1990, they came up with this proposal that they should reduce the sentence of rapists, of prostitutes, because their argument was a prostitute would not be affected by rape physically or psychologically. And back then in Turkey, against this terrible um, proposal, women were able to unite and raise their voices, so much so that the lawmakers took a step back and and this law was just you know put aside but in a way i ask myself how we made progress since then and i'm afraid just the opposite i think we've been as a country going backwards and today we don't have that kind of solidarity even among women anymore and i think when women are divided the only thing that benefits from that is patriarchy itself so overall i think i wanted to say in a way since then turkey has been going backwards not only the government became more and more authoritarian at the same time, I think ultranationalism has increased in Turkey, Islamism has increased, and alongside with these forces, there's always an increase in sexism, misogyny, and homophobia. I think they go hand in hand. Well, part of what happened at that particular date was um, the announcement of military intervention in Iraq. Of course. Do you think that, I mean, that opened a new era of hostility? Absolutely, because imagine the Middle East changing this much. Again, the huge mistakes that were made in Iraq and how that changed everything, its political consequences that even to this day we are experiencing, right? So I think we need to understand that the past is very important. We need to be able to come to terms with the huge mistakes of the past. And and maybe we need to understand that the past is still alive within the present moment we're living today. Mm Um, so now let's talk about the characters. Um, we've talked a little bit about Layla. We don't know much about her. She was born in Van, which is a provincial city, is that yes, right? Yes, just the other end of Turkey. Yeah. The other end of Turkey mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. a poor family. And there are lies in her family that mm-hmm. it, all of these characters in some ways are, are affected by deception, dishonesty, yeah. lies. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's a very patriarchal family, her family, and there's polygamy in the family. So in a way, she is um, raised in a family with two mothers and one father without knowing exactly who is her um, biological mother. And that's very damaging for her. And as you said, there are lots of silences, there are lots of secrets and lies and deceptions in the family. Love as well, affection as well, but it's much more complex than that. And as she grows up, I think it becomes much harder for her because alongside um, her father becomes more and more religious. He is not only religious, he wants to dominate the lives of the people around him. He wants to shape their lives. And at a time when his own daughter is discovering her individuality, trying to find her freedom, uh, understand her own sexuality, because the father is so extremely rigid and religious, um, the clashes become more obvious within the family. So more and more it becomes difficult for her to breathe in that in that family and in a in a place like Van where there's very little room for diversity. And she runs away to the big city um, yeah. as 
characters looking for freedom always have yeah. done in, in yes. literature and, and, in, and in the world. But there she teams up with four other characters, yeah. three of whom are also from minorities, yes. very particular minorities. Yeah. Um, we've got Zainab122, who comes from a family who they have dwarfism, a Humaira who's become a cabaret singer, and Nostalgia Nalan. How do you pronounce it? Nalan or Nylan? Yeah, I, I pronounce it as Nylan. Nylan, but, yeah. who is transsexual. Yeah. Why did you pick these particular Mm-hmm. characters to be her friends and companions well this is something i have experienced in istanbul so many times istanbul is a magnet and it is a city that calls i think there are cities in this world that call us and we follow that call without quite knowing why that's how i moved to istanbul i didn't grow up in istanbul so i moved in my early 20s and i knew i was a late comer as a, an outsider in a way uh, when you're an outsider, maybe you appreciate the city even more. You don't take things for granted. Every little thing you research, you study, you pay attention to. But at the same time, Istanbul is a difficult city. It's a city of scars. And it's a city where particularly if you come from a more disadvantaged background, if you don't have the same kind of power or privileges, you might find life very difficult. So there isn't one Istanbul, you know. I always think there are more than they're Istanbul's, plural. And these Istanbul's sometimes coexist, but often they clash. And maybe I wanted to reflect that complexity of the city. Nonetheless, I have met over the years while I was living in Istanbul, I've actually met people coming from all over the Middle East for different reasons, but particularly sexual minorities, because to them, relatively speaking, uh, Istanbul felt more free compared to where they came from. There was a little bit more freedom. Or I've met ethnic minorities, cultural minorities, people who were just on the edge of their own, you know, the periphery of their own society. Somalian. There's another girl who's come in with nothing as an immigrant. Yes. Yes. Although, of course, her case is slightly different because we also need to understand that Istanbul over the years has become the crossroads of uh, sex trade and uh, sex slavery, you know, modern day slavery. So these are, again, very difficult conversations that we're not yet capable of having in Turkey. And oftentimes the Turkish media pretends it's not happening, but it is happening. So, again, there are many layers to the stories in Ist- of Istanbul. And one of the places that these layers uh, reveal themselves is in the names people choose for themselves. And I was really interested to read that you chose your pen name. You constructed a pen name for yourself, which isn't your birth name, but but uses your mother's name. That in, is correct. Yeah. It, just explain to me. This, I wondered if there was something different about the significance of names going on. Well, I think partly it's because I was raised by two women and maybe my upbringing was a little bit unusual because I was born in France, in Strasbourg, and the first house that I was brought into was full of immigrants, leftist students, you know, reading Althusser, um, Jean-Paul Sartre, but may- maybe not so much Simone de Beauvoir, talking about revolution, smoking gouloise. That's how I think about that house in Strasbourg, in, at least in my in my mind. But after a while, my parents' marriage collapsed and my father stayed in Strasbourg and my mother brought me to Turkey. For her, it was motherland. For me, it was a new country altogether. And from then onwards, I was raised by two women, my mother and my grandmother. My mom is very westernized. Eventually, she became very well educated, very rational, secular. 
modern, urban, and my grandma is pretty much the opposite. Uh, less educated, very wise in her own way, very irrational, and very supportive of women's empowerment and, and women's education. So I think that left a big impact on me, the solidarity that I've observed between these two very different women. Uh, and I grew up without seeing my father much. Maybe that's part of the reason why I felt like the other in some ways, because I knew he was a very good father. Uh, he had two other children and he was a very good father to them. But I could connect with them only much, much later in my late 20s. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that might have played an impact too. But as an author, as a storyteller, as someone who loved literature, there came a moment when I thought I wanted a pen name. And I was looking, rather than carrying my father's surname, uh, I wanted to have my own pen name. And I chose Shafak, which also happens to be my mother's first name. But the reason, one of the reasons why I chose Shafak is because it's a gender neutral name. It could be a men's name or a women's name. It doesn't have a gender. I found that liberating as well. And ever since then, I've only used Shafak as my surname. And it means dawn. Is that it right? means dawn, yeah. Which again ties in quite interestingly with your politics of optimism and pessimism, yes. which r underlies this whole book. Um, yeah. I, I wonder how much you're an optimist and how much you're a pessimist. The worst possible thing happens to Layla, yeah. but she leaves behind a family. Is what we take from this the death or is it the friendship? Yeah, I think um, even though this is a book that deals with really heavy subjects, difficult subjects, if I may say, I honestly think it's a life-affirming book. I honestly think it's a book that celebrates friendships, diversity. At some point in the book, I talk about, well, Nylon talks about water families. And I think in this life, we have two types of families. We have our blood families, the families we're born into. And if our blood family is loving and caring and kind, that's wonderful. That's a blessing. Not everyone is as lucky, particularly to those people. The book is saying, don't forget, as you keep living, you're going to have another family and that's going to be your water family. And I think our water families are composed of our close friends. The number of those friends can't be dozens and dozens. It can only be maybe five or six maximum. But these are the people who know us best and they are the ones who pick us up when we fall down. So I think in particularly in countries where the public space is very much dominated by one hegemonic narrative and it's difficult to be different, particularly in such societies, these friendships and water families become even more important. But if I may come back to your question about optimism, you know, I think I can't be too optimistic. I'm, I'm Turkish. It's not in my genes, you know. And I also think if you open the map of Europe and if you trace it with your finger, the river Danube, you know, the blue Danube, as you move from Germany towards the Black Sea, I think the level of optimism drops. So by the time you reach Romania, Bulgaria, Black Sea, Turkey, we're not very optimistic traditionally, probably because of the past, you know, the legacies of our histories, etc. But eventually, I think uh, I am someone who likes very much what Gramsci, what the Italian political philosopher Gramsci used to talk about, pessimism of the mind and optimism of the will, optimism of the heart. And I like that combination very much. I think the mind has to be pessimistic so that it can be more alert and sharp and aware of the dangers uh, particularly today, but the heart has to remain optimistic so that we can appreciate our fellow human beings, connect with them, listen to them, you know, talk to them and not be aloof 
or not fall into the trap of anger or apathy. That's why I like Gramsci's combination. When your novels were first published, they were translated from Turkish into yeah. English. Yeah. Now they're being translated from English into Turkish. Is that right? You're actually writing them in English. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all aware of you from um, The Bastard of Istanbul, which was longlisted for the Orange Prize. But more recently, since then, The Forty Rules of Love sold 750,000 copies in Turkey. You're a massive Turkish author as well as an English author, but you are now pretty much banned. You can't go back to Turkey. What does that mean to you? Well, Turkey, it's it's very complex because while you might be um, attacked, slandered by the elite, cultural and political elite in Turkey, at the same time, you might experience a very heartwarming relationship with the readers. So I always make that distinction. You know, I make a distinction between the government and the people. And I think the tragedy of countries such as my motherland is that uh, the people in these societies, the civil societies, are far ahead of their governments, but they lack the power to change those governments. So it is very clear that as Turkey became, as the government became more authoritarian, it became harder and harder to deal with words. Anyone who deals with words, whether you're a writer, a poet, an academic, a journalist, particularly it's much more difficult for journalists. Today, journalism is the most difficult profession in Turkey. And I really have a lot of respect for people who are trying to do their job properly. And as you know, Turkey has become the world's biggest jailer of journalists. But I think anyone who deals with words knows that because of something you say in an interview, because of a poem you write, or an article, or a novel, in a day you might be called a traitor, a betrayer, you might be sued, put on trial, exiled, detained, arrested. We all know that. And as a result, there's a lot of self-censorship in Turkey among the literati, which is a subject that's very difficult to talk about, because how do you talk about the kind of censorship that comes from within? Not necessarily always from outside, but I think we need to talk about self-censorship and censorship together. So it's clear that it's difficult to write about political issues, particularly political taboos. This is, a sex- this is about sexual violence, which yeah. is sanctioned by people of power. against the powerless, i.e. a prostitute, which is what Leila is. Well, imagine, I mean, we need to bear in mind that in Turkey, and these are official figures, when you look at the statistics, the the violence against women in Turkey increased by 1,400% in the last decade, 1,400% increase. This is a country in which, according to women's organizations, one out of every three marriages involves an underage girl. The number of child brides in Turkey increased alarmingly. Also, we need to bear in mind that there are close to 4 million Syrian refugees, and unfortunately, many Syrian families think that it will be safer for their daughters if they if they're married off so more and more girls are being married at a younger and younger age also the government passed a law that is called muftu law which enables particularly in the countryside families to marry their daughters at an early age so there's a huge mess we have a huge problem and again a couple of months earlier Again, the legislators tried to pass this horrible law suggesting that rapists 
should get a lighter sentence if they agreed to marry their victims, as if they are doing their victims a favor. This is also a debate we're having in Lebanon and in many other parts of the Middle East. Unfortunately, these are the laws and this is the mentality that we need to fight against. So all I'm trying to say is Turkey has serious issues when it comes to child abuse, gender discrimination and gender-based violence. But instead of dealing with these existing problems, The prosecutors in Turkey today are targeting fiction writers who write about these issues. And they have done that physically. I mean, they have. Yeah. They, you are under investigation at yeah. the moment, is that yeah, right? I, I along am, with other writers. Yeah, I'm under investigation along with other authors. Police officers came to my publishing house, Turkish publishing house. They demanded my books. Also books by Duygu Asena, who was an iconic feminist. She passed away in 2006, but she was one of the leading feminist authors in Turkey. Her books are being investigated it as well and right now a prosecutor is reading our fiction to see if we have committed the crime of obscenity whatever that means so there's a problem of personal risk to you of your personal ability to go back what about your ability to get your books into the hands of those 750,000 Turkish readers is it possible or are you being silenced as a writer as well as Well, I think writers, particularly critical-minded writers, are being silenced in the mainstream media, you know, so you don't get a chance to express your views there. But as I said, Turkey is very, very complex. And maybe paradoxically, in countries where there is no freedom of speech, and Turkey is one of them, paradoxically, maybe somehow stories matter even more, and maybe books do not evaporate as fast as in some other countries. The reason why I'm saying this is because when I look at the way books are shared in Turkey, and many people tell me that it's the same in India, in Pakistan, in Turkey, a book is not a personal item. If a reader enjoys a novel, if she likes it, if he likes it, they pass it on. They share it with their best friend and the best friend sends it to her aunt and aunt sends it to her neighbor. So I've seen this so many times. People, when they bring me a book, it has been underlined by different colored pens because different people have been reading the same copy. And I think that is very precious. You know, that word of mouth, sharing the stories. And I honestly think if books still survive in countries like Turkey, if the publishing industry still exists we really owe it to our readers and this book has been published in turkish yes it and is. it is available in bookshops it is yes they they do not ban books outright they usually prosecute the writers or, or the journalists that's usually what they do yeah it's also been long listed for the booker congratulations yeah. what, what what does this story have to tell us here in the uk do you think it's obviously struck a chord mm -hmm. why has it struck such a chord Well, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, primarily, the question, of course, is what remains from a whole life? How do you condense that story into a few minutes? That gave me the structure of the book. You know, when we die, what remains behind? Uh, and I, that's a very universal question. But also, as I said, this is a book that celebrates friendships and reminds us of the importance of friendships and diversity. I'm someone who very much believes in the importance of cosmopolitan encounters. And again, I come from a country that has lost its cosmopolitan heritage. And I think in Turkey, by losing that, we have lost a lot. Today, diversity is one of our biggest debates and I'm sad to see that it's not being appreciated anymore by many people. Also this is a book that talks about multiple belongings. I when I look at myself, of course I'm an Istanbulite. I feel very attached to Istanbul. 
uh, and I think I carry it with me wherever I go. But I'm also very attached to the Aegean, the Balkans. You know, put me next to a Greek author or a Romanian, Bulgarian, Bosnian author. I have so much in common. That said, there are so many elements in my soul from the Middle East. So again, from someone coming from Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, I have so much in common. At the same time, I'm a European by birth, by choice, the values that I share. Over the years, I've become a Londoner. I love this city. I feel very attached to this city. I've become a British citizen. And this is where I felt free to write as a as an author. And whatever Teresa May says, I would like to think of myself as a citizen of the world. That doesn't mean I have no sense of belonging or attachment. It doesn't mean I don't care, just the opposite. It means I have multiple attachments, multiple belongings, and we do care about many things at the same time. So I think this is a book that in a way tries to swim against the, the current in a way. Elif Shafak, 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world is published by Penguin Viking. And we'll be back after the break with a look at the literature of exiled and migrant writers. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Earlier we heard Elif Shafak telling us how it's no longer safe for her to return to Turkey and that by living in London, she can write freely and without self-censoring. We thought it would be interesting to look at some of the other authors who have, for various reasons, been forced to move away from their homelands. Richard, you made the point that forms of repression have changed since the days when Wallace Yinka and Jack Mapanji were denounced as enemies of the state, respectively in Nigeria and Malawi. Well, I guess it's not so much changed as evolved and expanded. I mean, there are still writers getting locked up, like Wale Shinko, who's locked up um, without trial in 1967, or Jack Mpanji, who was imprisoned uh, in 1987. But there are still writers getting locked up like that. I mean, there's Ilam Toti, who's serving a sentence, a life sentence in China after being convicted of separatism back in 2014, or Ahmed Naji, who was convicted of violating public modesty in 2016, released later that year. So there's still writers getting locked up by the state. But there are also a kind of spectrum of other pressures that are brought to bear on writers. I mean, again, there's a writer like Maria Aliokina, who was convicted herself in 2012. I'm sure you remember the Pussy Riot performance in the cathedral, um, and after which a couple of them were arrested and then served time. She was released at the end of 2013. Uh, but she's now continuing to protest, continuing to, to be an activist. She, in fact, defied a travel ban uh, last year to travel to the Edinburgh Books Festival, and I think is now back in Russia after that. But then there are writers who also suffer repression of other forms. I mean, there's, there's a guy called Tutul, or Ahmedur Rashid Chowdhury, in Bangladesh, who was attacked in October 2018, which so is at the end of last year, uh, by assailants with machetes and guns who weren't actually state actors. They were kind of right-wing vigilantes of some sort who were objected to, to him uh, after and sent him death threats for publishing what they called atheist writers. And of course, that relates to um, the case of Roberto Saviano, who who has been um, under armed guard in his own country of Italy. But it's become even more complicated now, Sean, hasn't it? Yes. So um, Saviano, as people probably remember, uh, wrote his book Gomorrah in 2006 and famously was condemned by the Camorra Crime Syndicate in Naples and so was then unable to stay in Naples. He was forced to 
leave his home and he went overseas for quite a while and then every time he went back to Italy he had to live in police barracks with the police officers because it was the best way for them to guarantee his protection on Italian soil and there's quite a strange situation happening with him at the moment is that he's being currently summoned to stand trial on charges of libel against Italy's Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini over allegations that Saviano has made about Salvini's connections to the mafia. Salvini has issued a writ on ministry-headed paper and has asked to be represented by state lawyers. So he's being sued by the ministry that is protecting him. Yeah, so it's the exact same (laughs) ministry. So Salvini is the interior minister and they also look after Saviano's police protection. So he's in a really strange position right now and he's facing three years in prison if he's found guilty. Elif's case is interesting, sort of slightly different in that she's still published in Turkey, though she wouldn't personally feel safe there, whereas... Saviano is still in Italy. He's still in Italy and he kind of needs to be for his work because of his, but but he's obviously, yeah, not safe (laughs) entirely. That contrasts with Hamid Ismailov, for example, who was the first Uzbeki novelist to be published in the UK, whose Devil's Dance won the European Bank of Research and Development Prize earlier this year, who could go back to Uzbekistan, but he can't be published there, which is also similar, or at least until recently, of Marjan, the Chinese author who now lives in the UK, who has a very active relationship with China to the extent that he doesn't even speak English, though he has four English-born children. But his books have been banned for years and years and years. And recently, he can't even get them in through Taiwan and and Hong Kong, which used to be the back door for getting works Mm. into China. Which is kind of the flip side of an author like Murong Zhishuan, who still lives in Beijing. In fact, he um, he put himself up for, for arrest in 2014 after some of his friends were arrested themselves for a private protest about the Tianmen massacre. He's still in Beijing, still publishing in Beijing, but his books are censored, of course. So um, his, his novel, Dancing Through Red Dust, lost 20,000 words because of the censor. And he had to re- rewrite the ending not once, but twice after his publisher thought it was going to be too dark and the publisher would get into trouble. Of course, three or four months later, after publication, the publisher was shut down anyway. So there are all sorts of different ways in which pressures are brought to bear, some of which include imprisonment, prosecution, others of which just intimidation by various state or non-state groups and others, are just a sort of Twitter kind of aggression in, in, the, in the online world. It's a kind of a smorgasbord of, of options that the state or non-state actors use to try and silence people. There's an element of choice, isn't there? Even choice to take a particular route away from repression. For example, Suleiman Adonia, who yes. you interviewed, Sean. Yes, yeah, so, um, Suleiman, um, his family come from uh, Eritrea. They were forced to leave when he was very small. Um, his father was killed by a gang just before the uh, Eritrean-Ethiopian War. And so he left with his family and they lived in refugee camps. And then um, he eventually went to Saudi Arabia with his mother, um, who worked as a cleaner, and then left uh, Saudi Arabia for the UK with his brother. They were here by themselves and he learned how to speak and write in English and then wrote this amazing book, The Consequences of Love. And then more recently, Silence is My Mother Tongue. Um, and he writes in English. He writes in English and he talks about English in a really interesting way. He sort of says that it allowed him some distance. And he can't go back to Eritrea because Eritrea has a compulsory national service, which is also indefinite. You're never guaranteed that you're able to leave national service. So if he ever goes back because he's of serving age, there's a very big chance that he would be forced to um, serve in the Eritrean army. His mother is there, and so he, he hasn't been back since 2005. 
obviously it's a choice not to go back. He could go back. The Eritrea is not keeping him out, but obviously there is a real danger to him. And he has his life in Europe now. He lives in Belgium. Mm. But it's obviously a very tricky thing and it's obviously something that really troubles him. Um, and there's also the issue of, of sexuality, which comes up again and again, doesn't it? Yes. Another author you interviewed, Salim Haddad, yes. a while ago. And so Salim has a really interesting story and his family has this whole history of migration basically determined by world events and wars. So he was actually born in Kuwait, but then was raised in a lot of different places. And then his parents are in Abu Dhabi now and he lives in the UK. He has said before that because uh, his novel, his debut novel, Guapa, um, is all about a young Arab man who is gay, who is sort of struggling with both of those identities, being an Arab man and being a gay man, that English is a really useful thing for him to be able to write in English about it. It has to be said that actually homosexual acts are illegal in in the Arab Emirates, in Abu Dhabi anyway. And he did say that, you know, his parents are for the most part understanding but there is absolutely antagonism and violence shown towards gay people there. I'm interested by what you say about the idea of writing in English is another way of getting this kind of distance because that's one of the ways in which writers who aren't writing where they're born that's uh, one of the ways in which their voices are slightly different. Yeah it's, uh, I mean another a person who who's come up very recently Ilya Kaminsky who's who's um, a really brilliant poet who was from Ukraine came over at the age of 16 said he started writing in English precisely because he needed to write about the death of his dad and it was easier to do so in a language that his mother and his brother can read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because it felt insulting mm. yeah. to, to write about somebody. And like so Ocean that we had on the podcast recently. Ocean Wong. Ocean Wong. His family obviously came over after the Vietnam War, but he spoke about that on the podcast, that being able to write in English gave him some freedom because his mother can't read English, and so she hasn't read his book, which is sort of sad, but also understandable. So Ocean Wong is interesting in that he arrived when he was sort of preschool in the country pretty much and so he's effectively second generation and I've been making a study of of these effectively second generation writers who were brought over by their family when they were very small therefore they've been educated in the culture of the language of arrival. It's particularly interesting around Eastern Europe because you know if you think that um, everything began to loosen up in 1989 then the Yugoslav Wars happened. So you've got a, a whole population who arrived. And um, one of the most distinguished at this point is Alexander Hemon, who's now in his mid-50s. He's Bosnian. And he was described by the New Yorker critic James Wood as a postmodernist who'd been mugged by history. And I just think that's such a brilliant way of summing it up. You know, you just think his, his most recent novel, um, The Making of Zombie Wars, sort of absolutely keyed into popular culture, American popular culture, but its background is the wars by which he was mugged. He, he was actually on a trip to the US when he suddenly could never go back again because the war broke out. So. Of course, he was a little older than Ocean Wong when he suddenly started writing English. It's kind yeah, of magical yeah. feat. He's not a child who's been naturalised, as it were. Um, another example slightly similar to that, more recent, is this Czech writer Jaroslav Kalfa who was also is is totally immersed in American pop culture. Yes. But it's also infused with the idea of the Czech Republic and the and the space race. Yeah. <laughs> Spaceman of Bohemia, which we both really liked. I absolutely loved we? it. Involves yeah. a thirty six eyed spider who is with lipstick. 
<laughs> B-movies, you can see. Taya Obra, the um, Tiger's Wife author, she has got a new novel out now, actually, I think just this week, um, called Inland, all about the American West. And uh, Taya, obviously, she came from Belgrade. Then when she left, it was part of the uh, former Socialist Republic of Serbia. She then moved to Cairo and she moved to Cyprus as well, I think, and then ended up in America when she was 12. So obviously it was like prime age to then get her education and uh, obviously is very much naturalised in America. Um, but it's interesting to see her writing about America now. It's Yeah, because her first book was as this fabulous surrealist fable, The Tiger's Wife, which was set in an unnamed Balkan state. Yeah. But now she's actually writing into the heartlands of American literature, and which American is the history, Western. Yeah. It's about the Western. Yeah. But she has been described as succeeding spectacularly in reinventing a genre and its tropes. Well, that is so interesting, isn't it? Because she's taken, it's sort of reverse identity appropriation, isn't yeah. it? She's was, absolutely was... bought into it, but she's also bringing something that no American-born writer could bring to it. Yeah, I was talking to an author recently, her name's Angie Kim, and um, her family uh, left South Korea um, when she was a child, and it wasn't really an easy move for her because she arrived in America, she didn't speak English, she was bullied a lot, her parents worked non-stop, um, she was actually left at her aunt and uncle's place um, while her parents slept in the back room of the corner shop that they owned and ran because they just worked so hard they didn't even leave to go home and sleep, they just spent every day all day in that shop. Angie was saying to me that she actually feels there is an honesty in being a second generation migrant she likened being a second generation migrant to being like that close friend that can look you in the eye and go i love you but these are all the ways that you are ruining your life or doing bad things like they're the honest friend and she's saying this is what the role of the second generation migrant is is that you are writing back to the country that you love and going this is how you actually are not how you see yourself mm. well um, you and lee is another yeah. example of that. She was an immunologist originally. She's one of those mega brain boxes who, who <laughs> um, then switched to writing. She talked fascinatingly about the way she uses um, the first person plural. She said that communality is not simply a physical reality in China. Though all her characters live in tiny spaces, it's also a way of being. You know, it's a different sort of plural yeah, to exactly. the plural of somebody like... English writers writing with we as their... Uh, or if you do, it means something different. Like, mm. for example, Joshua Ferris's um, Then We Came to the End about office life. He wrote in a plural, but, but it was a sort of techno postmodern we. <laughs> How's that for a, a phrase? So, so, <laughs> so, so going back now to Bashevis Singer or Saul Bellow, what they brought into the language is a different way of being, a different temperament and mm. temperature. It's not just about subject matter. And then like, give it a couple of decades and these will all be regarded as part of the American They'll be canonical. Canon. Yeah, exactly. That's all for this week's podcast. Next week, we'll take a look at Metafiction and the Road Trip novel in the company of Salman Rushdie, hot on the heels of his Booker long-listed novel Quichotte, inspired by Cervantes' classic Don Quixote. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And as ever, please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. Me, Richard Lee. Me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Ian Chambers. Thanks for listening and goodbye. great podcasts from The Guardian. Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Listener.